life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, <clears throat> welcome on this uh, warm October afternoon. And uh, before we do anything else, let me put out a question for you guys. What event made Poldu Point in Cornwall, that's on the southern coast of, uh, of the UK, famous? Poldu, P-O-L-D-H-U, Poldu Point. Some event occurred there that made it famous, and people still make pilgrimages to that, uh, that area. All right, it is October, which means that it is time for the Trache Public Science Symposium. This is an event that we have been hosting now for over a decade. We invite speakers from around the world, top-notch speakers, to address the Montreal public on various issues of scientific interest. Obviously, because of um, uh, COVID right now, we cannot do this live as we normally would. Uh, those of you who have attended uh, know that it's quite an event. We've held it at the Montreal Center, and we had nice... Uh, uh, hors d'oeuvres before the presentations and discussions after, and it really was a memorable event, but we're going to do our best to bring it to you uh, for free, of course, as is as usual, and uh, I guess it is going to be easier for you to attend because it is going to be all online. So to bring you up to date on this, I'm going to bring in our public relations coordinator, Emily Shore, and uh, we're going to discuss exactly what we are going to hear and see uh, uh, tomorrow and a week from tomorrow. Hey, Emily. Hey, how's it going? All right, so let's uh, let's alert people to exactly what is uh, going to happen tomorrow. Sure. Okay, so it's the first, like the kickoff day of the Trache Symposium. This is the online edition. Normally, we would have it, you know, on two consecutive days. This year, we decided to do it on a Monday and then the following Monday. So we have two amazing speakers tomorrow who will be each presenting for a half hour. We have Brendan Nyhan, who is the professor of government at Dartmouth, and his specialty is fake news and politics, and also obviously touching upon vaccines, which is obviously something that we are interested in um, hugely, especially, you know, recently with the politicization of science and health. And then we also have Britt Hermes, who is a former naturopath, um, and she's going to talk about all her she basically studied um, like naturopathy, and now she's doing uh, a master's of science, and she, I guess, saw the light, as you would say. Um, and she'll talk about why it was so compelling, you know, to be in that field to begin with, and then a lot of the signs that kind of pointed her in the direction that this is not going um, as it should. So that's tomorrow, and it's all going to be online. Like you said, it's all for free. Anyone, anywhere can log in and uh, take a pen. You can write it down. It's YouTube.com slash McGill OSS slash live. Um, and again, the same for next week. Um, next Monday, we have Wendy Zuckerman, who is the host of the very cool podcast called Science Versus. I know, Joe, you listen to it often. Um, and she'll be talking about journalism um, and, you know, covering the coronavirus these past few months um, and the pandemic and, you know, the state of journalism and fact versus fiction and how journalism had to, you know, catch up with the science. Um, and then we also will have Anthony Warner, who has written a bunch of books. He is actually a chef by training and then started to kind of see that there was a lot of misinformation around food and nutrition and everything. And he'll be talking about world hunger and, and, and you know, food and poverty and how to feed the world and a lot of the misinformation around uh, the environment. So we're touching upon a lot of different things. And it's all free. Um, we are asking people to RSVP. 
um, just because it gives us an idea of who's watching, you know, who's on the other end, and also you could provide feedback. So you could RSVP on our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS. Um, but really, even if you don't RSVP and you want to tune in tomorrow and next week, you just have to log in to that youtube.com slash mcgilloss slash live. So I'm excited. Uh, you know, I'm going to miss the reception, and I'm going to miss being with everyone in that auditorium, but I think it'll be good. I think so. I, I think we'll have a yeah. good time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a relaxed atmosphere. People can be uh, sitting at home having lunch and exactly. uh, and watching. Yeah. So it's going to be it's interesting. It's like an extended lunch break. And, and yeah. two, of the, two of the speakers are actually from the U.K. So Britt is in Germany, uh, and she's logging. she'll be, you know, live at basically in her time. It'll be 6 p.m. And then next week as well, Anthony Warner is in uh, London, I believe. So um, that's why we had to do it at noon. But like we said, extended lunch break or you know, grab it. And it, it is important. If you cannot tune in live, it is available afterward. It'll be on our website, publicized on our social media channels. It'll be in our newsletter. Um, so you will be able to find it like everything else these days. Everything's posted uh, and kept online afterwards. And of course, the overall theme is the question of in whom do we trust? <laughs> yes, something important. Right. Which is, you know, these days it's, it's critical because there's so much misinformation and so much disinformation mm -hmm. that is is going around, and uh, it's time and to actually, pay attention. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I mean, we chose this we chose this theme well before the pandemic hit, you know, and then and then the last seven months happened. So it is interesting to hear, you know, it'll be to hear Wendy's take on how it was covering, you know, science in the pandemic from a journalist perspective. Um, and even Brendan tomorrow with the fake news. I mean, everything now has this COVID twist because it's impacted every single, you know, aspect of everyone's life. So. Yeah, Bill Bill Brownstein did an interview with Brendan, and that was in mm -hmm. yesterday's uh, newspaper. Right. So if anyone is interested, you can look up yesterday's Gazette, and you'll see right. the interview with Brendan, and you'll see that exactly. he's got some very, very interesting views. Uh, yeah. Obviously, his concentration is on the U.S. and mm -hmm. uh, the political situation there. And... Uh, it isn't good, of course, what is happening there in, in terms, no. certainly in terms of, uh, of COVID. And amazingly, the New England Journal did something that they have never done before. Uh, they posted an editorial in the latest mm -hmm. issue of, of the journal. And uh, does it ever uh, present a scathing view of uh, what is going on in the U.S.? And even right. the title, Dying in a Leadership Vacuum. Right. And, uh, you know, for uh, this journal, which is probably the top medical journal in the world, to come out with uh, remarks like that is, is really quite unusual. Yeah. And uh, let me just read the last two lines of this editorial. Uh, Truth is neither liberal nor conservative. When it comes to the response to the largest public health crisis of our time, our current political leaders have demonstrated that they are dangerously incompetent. We should not abet them and enable the deaths of thousands more Americans by allowing them to keep their jobs. And that, that's uh, it's just amazing that that's this would be in a you know in a scientific journal, right. but it just it goes to show how the scientific community is kind of coming mm -hmm. together and and uh, right. uh, trying to get out the proper uh, information. Well, because at the end of the day, I mean, like it's not you don't politicize science and health. There's there's fact and there's fact, right? So <laughs> that's the and then you know govern according to the fact and. Absolutely, so and and you know the amount of misinformation and disinformation is just uh, staggering, and those those are two terms are not the same. Uh, misinformation is just wrong information. Mm -hmm. Disinformation is willful wrong information. Right. 
Right. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a to totally different kettle of fish. And unfortunately, we have uh, quite a bit of that uh, out there as well. And we'll try to clean, clear all of that up on the next two Mondays. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Emily. And uh, un pleasure. unfortunately, you won't be able to host the uh, <laughs> party before and after. No. And uh, But uh, next year. I look forward to seeing everyone on, uh, you know, on the YouTube stream. So, yeah, it'll be great. Thank okay, you. thanks. All right, so that uh, happens tomorrow at noon. And again, it's on our YouTube channel. But uh, the, the way to get all of the information is just to go to our webpage, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. And that's also where you can sign up for weekly free newsletter. All right, let me repeat the question that I uh, put out there. What event made Poldu Point in Cornwall famous? Uh, and to give you a, a chance at answering questions, I'll, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll give you another one. Uh, in the late 1800s, he calculated that a cloth-covered airship containing 17 separate pockets of hydrogen gas would be able to stay aloft and even carry passengers. Who was he? Who was the man who calculated in the late 1800s that you could make an airship by enclosing uh, helium or a hydrogen bags in a cloth-covered airship. All right, you're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let me get to Kenneth, who's been waiting. Hey, Kenneth. Hi, uh, Dr. Joe. Uh, on the news, I heard uh, uh, dry air in, in Arizona and in Australia uh, at 47 degrees Celsius helps uh, destroy the coating on the virus. Is this true or is this just some experimental thing? Well, yeah, but you, you want to sit it in 47 degrees Celsius? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm thinking that if it's on the clothing... Yeah. In, uh, okay, the i tell you where this comes from. There was a study that just came out uh, uh, this week uh, where they examined how long the virus uh, lasts in a viable uh, way on different kind of surfaces. And uh, they found that it actually is uh, viable longer than we thought. In some cases, it can last uh, several weeks. But they also discovered that there was a big temperature variance. And uh, as uh, one would expect, uh, you know, the uh, virus does uh, not do well under heat. This virus actually is, is, uh, does very well in cold temperatures. And it also turns out that humidity is a, is a factor and uh, it does not do well in uh, low humidity. So this is where that this story came from. But uh, this experiment was done in the lab, and in fact it was done in darkness because they want to exclude light because ultraviolet light can also destroy the virus. And they put a large load of, uh, of virus on different kind of surfaces, and after a period of time they just measured the uh, activity level of, of, of the virus. There was a lot of criticism of this study because they used an unrealistic amount of, of, of virus. But um, I think the only value that comes from the study is to say that, yes, uh, the virus can live on some surfaces for a very long time. Interestingly enough, uh, it survived uh, better on smooth surfaces than, than on uh, uh, surfaces like cotton, which is somewhat surprising. But anyway, that's, that's where this information comes from, that, that under high temperature and uh, low humidity, uh, the virus is less likely to survive. 
but those are not the kind of conditions that we can set up in our home. Well, if you put the clothes in a clothes dryer at high heat, oh well, I mean, of course, I mean, there's the, that. There was never any question about that. That that uh, you know, the virus does not survive in a dryer or in a washing machine. Okay, thank you, sir. All right, uh, let me go to Robert. Robert. Good afternoon. Sir. Hi. Uh, your answer to your question would yeah. that be uh, Zeppelin? Yes, it is. It is. That was Count Zeppelin. And in the late 1800s, he made a calculation, you know, taking into account the buoyancy of, uh, of hydrogen gas, and he was able to calculate, you know, just how big this airship would have to be in order to hold the passengers and, and the engines that would uh, drive it forward. And the first flight of the Zeppelin took place in 1900. So that was well over 100 years ago. And believe it or not, they had transatlantic flights. Uh, there were local flights within Germany. The big uh, mast on top of the uh, Empire State Building in New York originally was supposed to be the mooring mast for the Zeppelins. It turned yeah. out that that never worked because the air currents in Manhattan were such that they, they couldn't navigate the airship there. But that's, that's why you had that uh, uh, tall mast uh, on it. Very good. Uh, let me ask you another question about that. So okay. we're, we're talking here uh, 120 years ago, the first flight of the Zeppelin, and they had these 17 large bags inside filled with hydrogen. Where would they have gotten the hydrogen gas back then? Uh, hydrogen. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, H2O, hydrogen to oxygen. Uh, is there any way that they could have gotten that from in boiling of water? Well, you can, th in theory, break down water with an electric current to generate hydrogen and oxygen, but that would be not economically possible because the amount of energy that you'd have to put in would be immense. All right, so what? you know what? We'll leave this question out, see if someone else can answer it. Okay? All right, so that's our next question. Where did they get the hydrogen back then in the late 1800s to fill the airships. And there were a lot of airships filled with, with hydrogen. Uh, during the First World War, uh, the Germans used these airships, these Zeppelins, as they came to be called extensively, uh, to bomb England. And uh, I mean, obviously, compared to airplanes, it was pretty primitive. They would literally hand throw out bombs from the, the Zeppelin. But nevertheless, it did do a, a lot of damage. And also, there were, uh, before the uh, First World War, there were transatlantic flights on, on the Zeppelin. And uh, it was uh, a luxury vehicle. The cabins um, on the Zeppelin were, were beautiful. The only problem with them is that there was no heat because they didn't have any way to heat it. Obviously, there no fire was possible on the Zeppelin because of fear of explosion of, uh, of the hydrogen gas. So the passengers, although they uh, were on, in very nice uh, surroundings, they constantly had to wrap themselves in blankets which were supplied. Uh, the temperature was not terrible because the Zeppelin did not fly very high. Uh, but nevertheless, crossing the Atlantic, it got, uh, got pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, of course, um, the hydrogen explosion eventually did happen, and that was the famous explosion of the Hindenburg coming in uh, to, for landing in, in New Jersey, and uh, that essentially put an end to all of the uh, hydrogen-lifted uh, airships, 
And today, the blimps that we have are all lifted by helium. Helium is not quite as good as hydrogen. It is not as light, uh, but uh, it doesn't have the uh, risk of explosion. On the other hand, uh, helium is uh, not going to be available forever. There's a fixed amount of helium in, in the world. Uh, it is found in underground uh, gas deposits because it is formed by the radio radioactive decay of uh, some minerals. Uh, so every time when you when you look up and you see that Goodyear blimp up there, uh, think of the history and now that it is all it is lifted by uh, by helium. All right, so I still have the other question: What event made Poldhu Point in Cornwall uh, famous? And uh, one more question: What is the street drug known as crack, and why is it so called? What is crack, and why is it so called? You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check. News and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let's see if Tom has an answer. Tom. Sir. Yes. Podu, that's where Marconi sent his first wireless signal, was it not? Well, you're almost right. You're almost right. But it wasn't Marconi. Marconi was the receiver, and Marconi had, had crossed the ocean. He was in Newfoundland. And, uh, of course, you're quite right about the, the signal being sent okay. from uh, Paul DuPont. But uh, it wasn't sent by Marconi. It was sent to Marconi okay. by Thomas I... Barron. Thomas okay. Barron. Oh, uh, so he was his assistant who stayed behind in, uh, in Cornwall. And, uh, of course, this was a monumental event, December 12, 1901. Uh, it was the first time that uh, radio signal had been sp sent across the ocean. And yes. there, there um, of course, signals had been sent in Europe. But the concern yes. was that because of the curvature of the Earth, that the radio signals which traveled in straight line would not uh, be able to be transmitted across the ocean turned out to be incorrect because the radio signals can bounce off the atmosphere. So you are quite right. That is exactly what happened at Poldhu Point in, in uh, Cornwall. Uh, how and about hydrogen? Is it electrolysis of water? Uh, well, you could make hydrogen from the electrolysis of water, except that that would never be uh, financially possible. Okay. It would cost way, 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 way too much. And certainly they would not have been able to do that back in 1900. I, I did some research on your last, last week's question on heated coffee. Okay, go ahead. On calcium oxide, it That'd is be the best one. Very good. When you when you mix calcium oxide with water, uh, calcium oxide is known as lime, and calcium hydroxide, which is the product of mixing with water, is called slaked lime, and uh, that is an extremely exothermic reaction. So the way that they have they make these uh, self-heating cans, uh, there is an outer pocket uh, in which there are two separate chemicals. And when you push the bottom of the can, the chemicals mix. One of the chemicals is water, the other is calcium oxide, and it generates heat. This was originally developed for the U.S. Army so that they would be able to have warm food on the, on the battlefield. But it is now available in, in self-heating uh, coffee cans. Can I ask you a question also uh, beyond that? Sure. Uh, when I buy yogurt in the larger containers, and when I use some and put it back in the refrigerator, there's always a spoonful of a nice clear liquid. But when the when I open the container, it never has any liquid on top. Why does it form when it's 
been used and not original container. Well, the water is just water. Uh, the, the liquid is just water. But why isn't there uh, any on top of the yogurt when I open the container from the store? There isn't, or you say that there is. There is not. And and after you've taken out a few spoonfuls and you put it back into the There's uh, always fridge. a spoonful or so of liquid. <clears throat> after you've mixed it. Not mixed no. it, just I take some out and put the remaining quantity in the fridge. And then the next day you see liquid on top? Yes. Okay, I'll have to try that, see if that if, if this is reproducible. But, but it's never, when you buy it from the store, it's always... Well, because it's also full to the top then, right? There's no. Well, no, there's a gap. There's a quarter of inch gap. My, my guess is that they put an inert gas in, because uh, the can, the yogurt container is sealed with generally an aluminum or a, mm-hmm. a plastic uh, sheath on top, and it's sealed around the surface. So my guess is it must be some inert gas keeping the No, but even if there were an inert gas, that would not keep the... But not the, inert gas, liquid. Uh, no, but, but some... Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll have to try it. I'll have to get myself a uh, container of that yogurt. The, you know, the I, larger half, half liter or whatever it is. Right, container. right, right. I always get the smaller one, so I never have noticed this. Okay, I, okay. I will give it a shot. Thank you, sir. Okay, thanks. There's a um, very interesting ceremony that takes place uh, every year in Boston at Harvard University, and it's the distribution of the Ig Nobel Prizes, which kind of a parody version of uh, of the Nobel Prizes, and they are awarded uh, they are awarded for legitimate research, you know, to 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 real scientists, but at first they sound crazy. Uh, the project sounds crazy, uh, but there are actually some real science there. And um, the ceremony is to, quote, honor achievements that make people laugh and then think. So let me tell you about a couple of the prizes that were awarded uh, uh, this year. The Material Science Prize went for a paper called Experimental Replication Shows Knives Manufactured from Frozen Human Feces Do Not Work. The goal of this uh, research team was to learn if there was any truth to the tale of an Inuit man who fashioned a knife from his own frozen feces and then used it to butcher a dog and transform its body into a sled and harness. And uh, this is something that has been going around, I know, on the on the Internet. Well, it turns out that they find that you cannot make a knife out of uh, frozen human uh, uh, urine. The uh, prize in economics... Uh, was awarded for researchers who were trying to quantify the relationship between different countries' national income inequality and the average amount of mouth-to-mouth kissing. I have no idea what they were after. Uh, The Medicine Prize, this is an interesting one. It was for diagnosing a long, unrecognized medical condition, misophonia, which is the distress at hearing other people make chewing sounds. And that is a, a real real condition. Uh, but they got the Ig Nobel Prize for looking into this. That condition is actually more widespread than people think. Uh, individuals are bothered by listening to others make noise when they, um, when they eat. The prize for acoustics uh, went to researchers at Lund University and at the University of Vienna 
for inducing a female Chinese alligator to bellow in an airtight chamber filled with helium-enriched air. That's an interesting research topic for you. Uh, the uh, Psychology Prize. This hits close to home because uh, one of the recipients was at the University of Toronto. And uh, this was for devising a method to identify narcissists by examining their eyebrows. Their studies showed that distinctive eyebrows may be a sign that someone is a narcissist. Why? Because grandiose narcissists strongly desire recognition and admiration. They may seek to maintain distinct eyebrows to facilitate others' ability to recognize them. Interesting notion. Uh, We'll have to take a look to see if Trump has uh, eyebrows that uh, that are, are sort of characteristic of this narcissist uh, personality. And talking about him, uh, the final prize that was awarded was the Medical Education Prize. And that went jointly to Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And it was for, quote, using the COVID-19 viral pandemic to teach the world that politicians can have a more immediate effect on life and death than scientists and doctors can. And uh, that's frightening. But they got the prize for that one. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. A question texted in. Uh, I heard that stainless steel utensils and cookware can be manufactured with radioactive materials, either if they are from reputable companies, if these items come from facilities in China or India. I think I know what you're referring to. And uh, there there were some stories about this a few years ago uh, because apparently some of the metal that the recyclers uh, send to, to be made into novel materials... Uh, some of that metal comes from uh, old power plants uh, or nuclear nuclear power plants or machines that were used in uh, in cancer treatment radiation machines and and still uh, are contaminated with uh, cobalt uh, so yeah there was a story about that a few years ago i don't remember hearing anything uh, recently but uh, I also do remember that the conclusion was that although they did detect radioactivity, it was at uh, levels that were uh, way below what would be harmful. You should also realize that, that uh, we are exposed to radioactivity all the time and that we ourselves are radioactive. Anytime you come close to a person, uh, you are getting some uh, radiation because uh, we all have potassium-40 in our body, which is uh, radioactive. So there's another reason to stay away from people. You can use this if you ever need an excuse for uh, physical distancing. Tell people that they are too radioactive for you to be uh, near them. Okay, uh, let me go to uh, Robert. Robert. Robert? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, Dr. Joe. Yeah, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah. I enjoy your show a lot. And for the for the answer to crack, it would be sodium bicarbonate mixed with cocaine and water and heat it up. And the sound is because crack is because the sound it makes when you smoke it. Exactly. Uh, cocaine, uh, of course, is a product that is found in the coca plant. And it is virtually insoluble in water. 
So in order to extract it, they they cook up the uh, leaves of the coca plant with hydrochloric acid. That converts cocaine into cocaine hydrochloride, which is then water-soluble. So it can be extracted, you evaporate it of the water, and you get uh, cocaine. That's the stuff that, that people snort, usually through rolled-up $100 bills, although they do this often. Of course, they don't have too many $100 bills left. But anyway, that— one more question? Wait, let me just finish. That stuff, oh, yeah. no problem, that, no problem. That stuff can't be smoked because it's not volatile. So if you want to convert it to a smokable version, what you have to do is neutralize the, uh, the acid part of it by adding a base. And that's where ammonia or sodium bicarbonate come in, and this is called freebasing. And then you've, you evaporate that off, and what you get left behind are these things that look like little rocks. And that's what uh, is put into a, a cocaine pipe, and that's what they smoke. But there's some solvent, uh, residual solvent left behind in the uh, uh, in, in these little uh, cocaine rocks. And when that solvent expands, when you smoke it, that's what makes the cracking sound. Okay, so what, what did you uh, want to add? Yeah, um, my dentist prescribed a mouthpiece for me because I grind my teeth at night. I had lost it, and I used a, a, like a, just a plastic, rubbery plastic hockey mouthpiece overnight. Is that dangerous for me? Oh, I don't think it's dangerous, but I don't think it's the yeah. right thing because you need something okay. that's, that's properly fitted. No? I mean, yeah, they, well, it fits quite well. It, it does yeah. the job. I'm okay with that. And one more question. Yeah. How much melatonin should I, should I take? Well, there's some controversy about that. One to three milligrams is the usual dose. Uh, I think one milligram is probably enough. Every day or? Well, whenever you want, you, uh, you take it about an hour before you plan on sleeping. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing that. It's been helping out a lot. Okay. If I take too much, is it a problem or? No, no, not at that dose. Okay. No, no. Okay. Thanks a lot. You're okay. Uh, on the trivia show this morning, I asked a question. Um, about uh, Russian botanist Mikhail Tsvet, who uh, put a mixture of uh, plant extracts on top of a column that was filled with uh, uh, powdered chalk. And I asked what was the uh, technique that uh, this led to, and it was a very, very <laughs> important technique. It's called chromatography. Chromatography. This is something we use in chemistry labs all the time. So anyway, the term was coined by uh, Mikhail Svet back in 1901 from the Greek for color writing. And Svet trickled an extract of green leaves through a glass tube filled with calcium carbonate, that's chalk, and he was thrilled to see the originally green solution separate into a series of colored bands as each component pigment adhered to the calcium carbonate to a different extent. There was an orange band for carotene, the yellow for xanthophyll, and a couple of green bands that Svet correctly concluded were due to chlorophylls that differed slightly in chemical structure. To the Russian botanist, it must have seemed as if colored ink had been used to dye the white calcium carbonate, hence colored writing or chromatography. And uh, since that time, uh, there have been huge um, developments in the field of chromatography, and there's column chromatography, there's paper chromatography, there's thin layer chromatography, there's vapor phase chromatography, uh, there's high pressure liquid chromatography. All of these are separate um, ways of separating components of a mixture, and that is one of the big challenges in chemistry. 
because you are very often dealing with mixtures, especially when you're dealing with natural compounds. Uh, an extract of a plant can have hundreds of different components. You have to separate them if you're going to study them, and that's where chromatography comes in. It is also very useful in identifying molecular structure because when you have uh, proteins or nucleic acids, uh, you can break them down into their components and separate those components and then identify what the original would have been uh, the same way as, uh, you know, uh, you may be able to, from uh, looking at pieces of broken vase uh, put together what that vase would have looked like before it was uh, broken. So chromatography is, is certainly uh, very, very useful in chemistry. All right, let me just remind you again uh, for tomorrow at noon. This is our annual McGill-Trottier Public Science Symposium, and uh, we will address the topic of whom do we trust critical these days. And uh, tomorrow we will hear from uh, Britt Hermes, uh, who is uh, a former naturopath, and she was not happy with the uh, practice that, that she was uh, uh, trained to carry out. And uh, she has found some interesting uh, uh, alternatives to uh, naturopathy, and she's going to discuss that. And uh, then we'll have Brendan Island, who will talk about uh, whom to trust when it comes to developing uh, ideas about uh, vaccination. And he is also a great political commentator, he's written uh, often in the Washington Post, and he's very concerned about what is going on in, in the U.S. right now. So we'll hear about that as well. So that's tomorrow at noon. If you want the details, please just go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS mcgill.ca slash OSS. It's all there for you. We'll see you at noon tomorrow online. And until we meet again, I hope that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.